welcome to this edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round, where there's monkey business afoot. Um, well, I'm dependent on the lovely hospitality of somebody once again, and it's somebody I didn't think would want to talk to me about Doctor Who, because frankly, it's a it's a minor blip on an illustrious CV. Um, so I'm going to ask my latest guest to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, um, Toby, my name is John Nettleton, and I passed through Doctor Who very briefly about... Uh, I should have looked it up. I think it was about... Fifteen years ago? Oh, it's longer than that. It's 1989, so... It's, it's 89. 89. So how many years 26 ago 26 years oh ago. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, I, as I say, I passed briefly through it. I have little recollection of it. I can remember some of the people who were with me. Um, uh, and then, of course, being extremely ancient, my memory tends to go. Um, I was... It's a great cast. Ian Hogg was in it. Who Ian I think you Hogg, worked with in theatre, hadn't you? Uh, who I worked with in the, at the RSC, yes, years later. Uh, or, no, before I, I worked with him. Um, no, um, famous actor who was in Zedcast. Oh, Frank Windsor. Frank. And I hadn't seen Frank for years. And he and I worked together um, some 60 years ago, I think. Um, and, and there we, we suddenly... Oh, I, I did some Zedcars with, with Frank. But uh, I hadn't seen him for ages. And, and there he was rehearsing Z, uh, uh, Doctor Who with me. And so we spent most of the rehearsals chatting to each other, and I didn't really um, pay much attention to to what was going on in the in the, in the episode. And I've still got a very um, ha a, hardly any idea of what the story was about, except that in that Doctor Who, I played a clergyman, who for some reason in the plot got changed into a monkey, <laughs> and I ended up sitting in a cage with a banana, munching a banana. Um, uh, as a made up as a monkey. In fact, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it was a fairly easy job for the makeup department. It seemed to me, it seemed to me, they did it rather too quickly. But uh, <laughs> uh, there, there are some pictures of me knocking around somewhere as as, as this monkey with a dog collar on. Um, <laughs> but what it was all about, I, I I don't know. And that a lovely actress who's now elderly, who was a wonderful juvenile actress. She was in Ice Cold in Alex, and uh, I can't think of her name now. Sylvia Sims. Sylvia Sims was in it, yes. That was, um, and as you say, um, Ian Hogg and one or two other worthies. But um, my memory of that, uh, except that uh, even all those years later, I still get asked for my autograph. People write to me because they'd seen this episode called, I think it was called Ghost Light. That's right, yeah. And, I st and they still write and say what a wonderful episode it was. I... I, I, I have to say that, you know, I, I don't really remember much about it myself, but it there was, it is. It was actually the last Doctor Who story to be produced before it was axed for the next, you know... Oh, really? So I finished it off You finished time, it off, yeah. yes, yes. But, <laughs> um, I, but at the time, The Independent called it the best Doctor Who story in ten years. Really? So, yes, yeah, and it is, it is regarded highly if... Uh, you're, you say you didn't really understand it, if I, don't, I think it's... Uh, not, not massively understood by a lot of people because it's quite complicated and, as you say, yes. about, uh, about evolution. Uh, yeah, that's right, it was, I think, yes, yes. And but there we are. Frank Windsor and yourself had worked, I don't know if you shared any scenes together, I'm just reminded, though, uh, in science fiction, uh, Afrandromeda. Ah, yes, you're right. I, now, that I'd almost forgotten completely. Um, yes, I was in a few episodes of that, I think, with Frank. Um, and, of course, it was the launch pad for that... A marvellous actress uh, who was since in Dr. Zhivago and, and Julie Christie, yeah. Julie Christie, it was her first job out of drama school, um, literally. I mean, and um, she was a very, very pretty girl, I remember, but uh, I, I mean, nobody thought that she was going to be a sort of major film star, which she turned into, and a marvellous, marvellous actress, too. And you end up you end up dead in the boot of a car, I think, in you know, a Andromeda. <laughs> You've got a much better memory than I have. There's a I, clip I, that, that, that is largely missing, but there's some film clips turned up. One of them is a shot of you dead in the boot of a car, I'm pretty certain. Uh, but that was directed by Michael Hayes and starred Peter Halliday, both yes. of whom you were with at Stratford. Well, you have done your homework, Toby. Yes, I was. I mean, I've had a very conventional career in many ways. I went to RADA, I, I did national service as a young man, because you did national service in those days. I... Um, 
uh, from 48 till 50, I, I, I was in the Middle East with the, in the RAF in a very humble capacity as a clerk. Um, and I came back from the Middle East, was demobbed, and I went straight to RADA uh, for two years. I got into RADA for two, and I was there for two years. In those days, drama schools had two-year courses, not three-year courses like they have now. I think two years is actually enough. But, uh, and from RADA, I went directly to Stratford to walk on at Stratford in the 1952 season uh, when Ralph Richardson and Margaret Leighton were leading the company. Um, and... Uh, I went initially just to be in Coriolanus, which was being played by Tony Quayle, who was also boss of the, of the, of the outfit then. It was then called the, the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre Company. And um, I, uh, I, I was just, they just needed extra actors to swell the crowd in, in Coriolanus. And I, I scraped into the company on five pounds a week just to be in Coriolanus. But then happily... Um, I was uh, one of, an actor who was a, a grade up from me, uh, called Mike Vaughan. Um, he joined the company to, to get seven pounds a week, and he was walking on in all the plays, all five productions. But he suddenly decided quite early that year, in, early in the season, that he didn't want to be an actor at all. He had a bit of a nervous breakdown, and he left. So they suddenly needed someone to take over his bits in all the plays, and um, I. Uh, for some reason, was picked out of the half a dozen people who were just in Coriolanus, and I was promoted to seven pounds a week, which meant that um, I could I could actually live on on seven pounds a week. When I was getting five pounds a week at the beginning of the season, I actually couldn't live on five quid a week. I mean, I never had a drink the whole season, I never, because I couldn't afford to have a pint of beer. Um, uh, but my digs were two pounds twelve and six a week for bed, breakfast, and evening meal. I used to get a cheap one and six lunch at the, um, the British restaurant, which was a thing they had in those days just after the war. Cheap restaurants, um, but um, I, I couldn't really afford to do anything. But uh, and I uh, at the end of the Coriolanus on Coriolanus nights, I used to dash off down the road to the Riverside Hotel, having got out of my makeup, and I used to serve coffee in the lounge to the old dears. And, and then when they went to bed, they'd been watching the show, but I mean, they didn't know I'd been in the show. And when they went to bed, I used to stay until midnight ironing sheets in the kitchen of the hotel. And for that, I got ten bob a night. And with those extra ten bobs, um, I, I used to, it used to make up my money to about six or seven pounds a week. But then once I was being promoted, I got seven quid a week, and I, I, I gave up doing ironing at the hotel. Um, and I could just about manage. And then at the end of that 1952 season, Tony Quayle was leading a company to tour Australia and New Zealand. Uh, three months in New Zealand, six months in Australia. We were away for a whole year. We went out by boat and we came back by boat. It was a wonderful tour to do. And I, I, I got a job in that company. I was kept on to be in, in that company. So that was my start uh, as an actor, going to Stratford and then doing this, the Stratford tour of, of Australia and New Zealand. And then I came down to earth with a bump because I found myself unemployed uh, in London, having just been in Australia for a year or so, and um, without an agent, without knowing anybody really in the business. And um, I was lucky then because I... I I heard that there was a young man from Cambridge uh, who was sending out a tour of Twelfth Night and Merchant of Venice for six months with mostly ex-Cambridge undergraduates, people who'd just left Cambridge with him. And the young man was called Peter Hall. And um, I auditioned for him and I got the part of Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night when I was much slimmer than I am now. And... Uh, Morocco and the Duke in, in, in The Merchant of Venice. And I went along to the first rehearsal on December the 30th, 1953, and there met a young actress who had also been acting for quite a long time, who was playing Viola in Twelfth Night. And um, uh, we very soon became a unit, and um, by the end of the tour we were a unit, and by the end of that year, exactly a year to the day, uh, since that first rehearsal, uh, I married the actress in question, uh, who was the actress Deirdre Doon, whom you've just met. Indeed. Um, and so that was... Uh, and so um, then Peter Hall uh, zoomed like a rocket uh, as, a, as a director, and I worked for him quite a lot 
in 19... Well, after we got married, at the end of 54, um, I went to Nottingham Rep, where I met Bernard Kay and various other worthies, um, uh, and I, we, we worked there as a pair, Deirdre and I, uh, until, I think, midsummer, by which time she was pregnant with our first daughter, so we had to come down to London and, and leave. We went back the following year when we had a small baby with us um, and did a couple of shows back at Nottingham. But um, that was how I progressed. I mean, basically, uh, I came to London again because we had a baby and um, we, we lived in one room for a while with a baby. We were very broke. And then I was lucky enough to, to meet... Um, Leo McKern again. Now, Leo had toured Australia with us, and I, I'd been a great friend of him and his wife, Jane. And um, I, I, well, I worked with, with him again in a play called Queen of the Rebels at the Haymarket. So that, that ran for a short while. I then, I'd worked for Peter Hall again in the West End, and he said, um, uh, would you be interested in understudying in, in this play I'm doing called Wait, Waiting for Godot? He said, and we need someone to understudy both tramps. Well, I've never been, I've never found learning lines terribly easy. I've always been a sweat for him and has remained so through my career. But I actually, I did learn both tramps uh, at the same time uh, and understudied for a short time in that, uh, which was a, bi a big strain. I mean, I dreaded one of the tramps being off. Was that the very first production? The first production <laughs> with, with Paul Damon. With Paul Damon, Peter yes. yes. And Peter Woodthorpe, yes, indeed. I worked with Peter later um, several times. Um, but uh, anyway, I didn't ha have to suffer that too long because I got another job, um, so I, I packed in the, the understudy business. Um, and uh, I did one or two other productions for Peter Hall, uh, Shadow of Heroes, uh, and a Tennessee Williams play uh, called Camino Real, um, with a great star cast that had Harry Andrews and Diana Wynyard, um, uh, well, a lot of well-known actors in there. And then, after playing quite a lot of small parts in the West End, because I had to, I had to work. I mean, in those days, if you were playing small parts in the West End, as I did in a half a dozen shows, I mean, in Queen and the Rebels, I was getting eleven quid a week, and I had a baby at home, you know. So that was we were very, very, very poor indeed. And then uh, the next year, I was in a play called Rollo with Leo McKern directed by Frank Hauser at the Strand Theatre. It was a sort of boulevard French comedy. Um, and for that, I was getting f I was playing uh, a manservant in that and also understudying Ferdy Main, who was in it. Uh, and uh, I remember the company manager came to me one day and said, uh, I was getting 14 quid a week for that. And uh, the company manager came to me and I said, well, you know, John, he said, you know, you have to provide your own costumes. Because in those days, if you were playing in the West End, you had to provide a dark suit, a dinner dinner suit, uh, and a sports suit, if the parts demanded it. I mean, if it was a modern play, then you were, had to provide your own costumes. Well, Ferdy Main was a very tall, elegant Viennese actor uh, who always dressed immaculately, and he had his own suits, you know, a wonderful dark suit and a flamboyant sports suit. And he wore both in, in this production of Rollo. And... Um, the company manager came to me one day and said, oh, by the way, John, he said, if you have to go on for Ferdy, you have got a, a dark suit and a sports suit. And I said, well, I, actually, I've got a t terrible dark suit. Um, I haven't got a sports suit at all because I just couldn't afford one, you know. And he said, well, I'll have to tell Mr. Henry Sherrick, who was the manager, he said, I'll have to tell Henry Sherrick because you know you're supposed to do that. Have, have. He said, I don't know what Mr. Sherrick will say. And I was summoned to the presence of Henry Sherrick, who was an enormous man. I mean, he was huge. Um, he must have been 25 stone. And he sat behind his desk, and, and I had this appointment to go and see him one afternoon. And I went into this large office of his, and he was sitting behind his desk, this great belly hanging over the desk. He said, I understand you've only got one suit. And I said, yes, Mr Sherrick, I'm afraid I have. He said, well... He said, you know you're supposed to provide. I said, yes, I do. I'm terribly sorry. I, I know, I, I, I can't. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, you go to Burton's in the Strand and buy yourself an off-the-peg suit, a sports suit, for £15, which I believe you can, and I will pay half, he said. 
with all the great benevolence in the world. And I, I did. I mean, in a way, I suppose it was quite good of him, decent of him, because he was a fairly unpleasant man. But, uh, and I went and I, I, I bought a, a sports suit for 15 quid. And um, Henry Sherrick paid £8.50 or whatever. But that was still half your week's yeah. wages. And then later, <laughs> Christmas was approaching. And... Um, the company manager came up to me again and said, oh, he said, you know, next week is Christmas week. And I said, yes, of course. And he said, uh, uh, well, he said, um, it, 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 Christmas Day falls on, on a Saturday or so. I forget what, exactly what day of the week it was. But the, the net result was, instead of playing eight shows a week, uh, no, I was getting £16 a week. That's right, I was getting 16 quid a week. Because he said, um, next week, he said, I'm afraid you'll only get £14 next week. Uh, because uh, we lose a performance, so we're playing uh, seven shows instead of eight. And uh, so I did. I, Christmas week, of all weeks, when you know I had Christmas to take care of. And by that time, I think I had three kids. I think my third daughter was born. We had three daughters under, uh, under the age of five. And um, that was quite tough. Bet. Playing for Henry Sherrick and getting 14 quid instead of 16 quid in Christmas week. But, you know, th those were the days when this happened. And uh, that ran for four months at the Duchess, and then uh, at, at the Strand Theatre. Then it moved to the Duchess for the last four weeks, I think. Um, and I had a stroke of luck because I, I, I'd only been getting very little money. Um, and on the last night, um, Henry Sherrick, the... Uh, impresario, announced that he was going to bring champagne to the theatre. We were all going to have a drink um, uh, to celebrate the, the, the end of the run of Rollo. So on the last night, we, we all hung around after we got changed, and uh, down the corridor into Leo McKern's dressing room, uh, where they had some plastic cups set up, down the corridor came Henry Sherrick, wearing a raincoat like a bell tent, and he produced from his pocket uh, two bottles of champagne and, and opened them, and, and, and uh, the champagne was flowing. And I was talking to Frank Horser, the director, who used to run the Oxford Playhouse, and he said, what are you doing next? And I said, nothing, I haven't got anything. Um, and he said, well, would you like to get on a train to, to Liverpool uh, on Monday morning? And because I want someone, I'd like you to take over in a production of mine called A Passage to India, which was uh, based on the, uh, you know, the, um, the novel. Um, and uh, it was a rather good part. And uh, anyway, I did. I, I went up and I, I, I watched the show and then I, I, I learnt the part fairly quickly, which was Mr McBride, the prosecutor, in, in, the, uh, in the trial scene. And um, that went into... That was touring at the time, and I joined it on tour, and then it went into the comedy theatre and it ran for, I think, a good six months, if not n nearer nine months. And... Um, by that time, I was getting. I was for that. I was paid thirty quid a week, and to get thirty quid a week for me was was marvelous. I mean, uh, I mean, it was reasonably good money in those days because I'm talking about nineteen nineteen sixty one or nineteen yes nineteen sixty one. I think it must have been. Um, and uh, so suddenly we had untold riches of thirty quid a week, um, and I you know we I I didn't worry so much about money. Um, and at the end of that run, uh, Peter Hall suddenly appeared. By that time, he had taken over at Stratford and he'd started the RSC in London too, at the Aldridge. So I then joined the RSC, which, which was fine. And in the end, I stayed five years there at the Aldridge, um, doing a lot of theatre work. Um, at a time when the, the, the company, certainly when I joined, the company was uh, very, very strong. Dorothy Tootin, Ian Holm, Michael Horton... Um, it was a very strong company, and uh, it was a great pleasure to be in, really. Um, but finally, I thought, well, you know, I can't be in the RSC for the rest of my life, so um, I must get out and do a bit of telly, which I hadn't, I'd hardly done any television at that time. Um, although I was beginning to do a thing, <laughs> I joined Blue Peter for quite a while, and I used to read stories on Blue Peter. Yeah. Um, not, not, not in vision, but I used to do what they call caption stories, and... and uh, uh, they used to do sort of illustrations from the stories, and I did the voiceover for these. And um, John Nettleton tells the story was quite a sort of catchphrase on Blue Peter. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't a great paying job, but it, it, a lot of people, strange enough, only the other day, I mean, years and years and years later, um, 
someone said to me, I recognise your voice from reading Blue Poop Peter stories. Wow. And I did do that for some, I mean, off and on, you know, but I, over about 20 years I used to read stories on Blue Peter. Um, so that, that was, you know, um, another job I did. But then I, I did start to do telly after that, and uh, I suppose uh, because um, actors who have families tend to have, to have to take whatever comes up, I did a... Perhaps I shouldn't say it, but I did an awful lot of dross really on telly because if if you're a working actor, you you do what comes along, you know. Particularly if you've got a family, I don't know. I've I've had a, a fortunate career in some ways. I mean, I've never been particularly famous, but um, I've I've mixed it up and I've done what I like doing, which is to play lots of different sorts of parts, you know, and uh, not to be typecast. I suppose Yes Minister playing Sir Arnold in Yes Minister was the nearest I came to being typecast, and. Uh, and I do get recognised as Sir Arnold still, particularly in Waitrose, where there are an awful lot of elder, elderly customers <laughs> like me uh, who tend to tend to remember Yes Minister. But, but it's a it's a terrific part, and it must. Have it's, it's a good part, and, and it was all it was a pleasure because I uh, to be with those actors because I'd I'd been at Rada with with Paul Eddington. We didn't overlap exactly, but he was around at Rada, and then I toured America and As You Like It when uh, in in the National Theatre all male as you like it. I was playing Jaquiz and Nigel Hawthorne was playing Touchstone in that and so we I got to know Nigel very well over that time and then you know what matter of four or five years later Yes Minister came up and uh, I worked with him most of my stuff in Yes Minister was with Nigel Hawthorne um, and I was very fond of Nigel I was uh, greatly saddened when he died because uh, he and I were of an age um, he would have been at my age now of 86 but he died he was in his 70s, um, when he was about 75, I suppose. And uh, that was a great shock to me because I'd, I'd, I'd heard he was ill. And uh, I wrote to him, because um, I hadn't seen him for some years, and I wrote to him, it was, must have been about 2005, something like that, uh, and said, I'm sorry to hear you're ill and so forth. And, and he wrote back and, uh, uh, and said, you know, I, I am fairly ill at the moment, but I'd love to see you and, and, and we can have a chat and uh, I'm determined to fight this thing. Um, but it was pancreatic cancer and, and, you know, there's not much of an answer to that. And uh, about two weeks after I got his letter saying that he was, you know, he was fighting and determined to get better again, I switched on the 8 o'clock news one morning and the news was that he died. And, uh, it was a great shock, really. And, and these things are tragic at the best of times, but in acting terms, for an actor that had uh, had a slow gestation, shall we and say... And then suddenly uh, found himself a star. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, yes, because it doesn't often happen that way. It no. Really, it really doesn't. And uh, I really do consider myself very blessed because I've I've scraped by as an actor and, and, and you know, I've, I've made a living as an actor without ever becoming famous. Um, and I've enjoyed the time. I, what has saddened, saddened me is that um, more recently I've, um, I've begun to get stage fright, and which is why I've stopped doing theatre. Um, and I, by the time I was doing a play called The Voice of Inheritance at the National in, in uh, I think 2006 or seven, I was beginning to get very bad stage fright, um, which I think with old actors is often the fear of forgetting your lines. Uh, and I mean, I've never had any disasters from that point of view. <coughs> but I began to feel sick at tea time on nights when I knew I had to give a performance in the evening. And I was playing a big part in Voise and I, I started to get very scared and I would go into the theatre and get made up. Every night we did a, a Voise inheritance uh, in the, in the theatre. And... Um, I would start to shake with nerves and I would s sit in the wings waiting for an entrance. I had a big scene in the third act and I used to sit there shaking with nerves. And I thought to myself, actually, although and, and once I got on stage I was fine, and you know, but I thought, is it worth it to really suffer every time? And then I did other, I did, I did a um, Somerset Maugham play at the Newbury Theatre for, for, for Peter Hall's son, Ed Hall. Um, and again, I was ridiculously nervous every time there was a performance in the evening I started to get the shakes and the nerves and I thought you know if you're not enjoying this business of going on stage why do it because yeah. um, I you know and then I did two plays at, at Chichester the last two things I did was the cherry orchard 
uh, at Chichester with with um, um, what's her name from the Avengers, who I've been at the Russian uh, Diana Rick with Diana Rick, Dame Diana, <laughs> uh, playing our card in um, and I I knew I'd been at, at the RSC with Diana as a young actor when I first took up a contract there at the Aldrich, and we did a lot. I was in a lot of plays with Diana, who was the most delicious twenty-year-old young actress uh, before she went into the Avengers and mm. became famous. But she was a marvelous, marvelous girl. Uh, so I was pleased to be with Diana again at, at, at Chichester. Um, and then the following, uh, my final thing I did in the theatre was, was a summer, was a Terence Rattigan play called Separate Tables. And I was in that uh, the year after. This was not five years ago now, I suppose. And um, again, I was getting terribly nervous. It's, it's stupid, you know. You, you think, why? Well, I've been an actor for 60 years or more. And suddenly to, to start shaking with nerves before you go on to do a scene is, is a very unpleasant feeling. Mm. Um, and I, I, I thought, no, it's time to stop. It really is time to stop. Um, and I did a little telly after that. but um, And I suppose... It doesn't really apply to telly. Um, the last thing I did in the theatre that I really enjoyed, and I wasn't nervous a bit, I did 750 performances in The Woman in Black during the 90s. Of course you and, did. And um, I, I did three chunks in London. I did it for nine months and then I went back. I was asked to go back to do six months and then I did a final six months uh, in 1998. Um, and it's a two-hander play. I mean, you have a lot of lines to work. And I never worried about the lines at all. I mean, I knew it and I, I, I just never worried about forgetting lines at all. And I also played it in Dublin. I went over and did it with another, uh, with an Irish actor in, a, in an Irish production in Dublin. Uh, didn't bother me at all in it, but it was after that, after that, um, The Woman in Black, I think the next thing I did at the National, I forget what it was now, um, but uh, I started to get nervous. That's that's when I began to get nervous, and I thought, no, time to stop. And I'm I'm glad I did. I mean, I I miss I I, I do miss it in a way. Uh, I don't miss feeling nervous. Uh, I miss actually acting on stage in a way, and I miss the company of actors. So so, what was your background, John? Was was theatre in your family? No, not at all. No, I'm I'm a sort of lower middle class family. My father was an engineer. He was a foreman in a small factory in Lambeth. Um, that was my background. I mean, I went to the local elementary school when there wasn't much money around. There weren't many books in the house. But I was lucky to have an older brother who sadly died um, a few years ago. He died about 20 years ago, in fact. He was eight years older than me. And I think he, he was determined to get out of suburban London life um, with no books in the house to read. Um, he, he started to take education seriously himself and I think uh, he became very interested in theatre. He went into the Air Force and had a distinguished career uh, in, in the Air Force in Bomber Command. He survived the war as a, and decorated with the DFC and so forth and then he became a um, uh, probation officer strangely enough but he was an ardent theatre goer um, and as, uh, as his younger brother, I was eight years younger than him so um, he sort of took me under his wing, I think, and he, he took me to the theatre when he went to the theatre. He encouraged me to go to the theatre. He encouraged, when I, when I showed signs of wanting to become an actor myself, uh, he uh, encouraged me. Um, I think my father was pretty taken aback that I was going into the theatre, although he came round to the idea in the end um, and became rather proud of keeping a scrapbook for me, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, but my background was nothing to do with the theatre at all. Um, and, but I did, uh, because of, I think because of the encouragement of my brother, I, whatever money I had, I spent going to the theatre. And I was lucky because it was the time when Olivier was at his peak and Ralph Richardson, Alec Guinness, Michael Redgrave were leading the profession and they were all at their peak at that time. Um, and I used to get a seat for one and six to, to sit in the gallery uh, at the new theatre, which is, was the home of the Old Vic's th company then, because the, the, the Old Vic had been bombed during the war. So the Old Vic company took over the new theatre, which is now called, well, I don't know what it's called, the Noel Card Theatre, that's right. Um, I wish they wouldn't change the name of the theatre. <laughs> um, and I, I did, I mean, I spent all my time, um, I acted at school, I had a very, I think, you know, 
I think people remember schoolmasters who were an influence on them at school. And I, I was lucky to have an English master who encouraged me to do plays at school. But then I, I, but I used to spend whatever little money I had in the gallery watching Gielgud, watching Olivier, watching Ralph Richardson, watching Alec Guinness, Sybil Thorndike, all the great actors of that age just after the war, before I had to go off and join the Air Force and do national service. But... Um, and, of course, when I was at Rod, I also saw these actors again. And I was lucky enough to work in a very minor capacity with John Gilgood, who directed Macbeth at Stratford, and um, Ralph Richardson was playing Macbeth rather disastrously. But uh, you know, these were my gods at the time. Was Jerome Willis in that production? Well, Jerry and I, strange you should say that, because um, uh, Jerry, I dressed with Jerry in 1950. He didn't go to Australia. He stayed on and, and stayed... He was in Anthony Kilpatrick with Michael Redgrave and... Sybil, and uh, Peggy Ashcroft. He stayed on at Stratford uh, while I went to New Zealand and Australia. I wrote to him so I knew he'd been in Richardson's because he'd said Richardson, he was young Seawood, I think. That's that, right, he uh, played young Seawood, uh, yes. And he did. said Richardson wasn't perhaps a natural. A natural no, he uh, was badly cast. Yeah. I mean, poor chap. I'd, uh, you know, there were many stories, of, most of them true actually, about him. I mean, he, he, he actually went up to Ray Westwell, who was playing Banquo during the performance. And said, Ray, I want you to give me five pounds. And Ray said, I'm sorry, Sir Ralph, because we always used to call him Sir Ralph. It was not Christian names in those days. Um, and he said, I want you to give me five pounds. Otherwise, I'm going to spread the word round London that you once played Banquo to my Macbeth, <laughs> which was very sad, really. And, and oh, I remember it. he came in to the green room the day, the, the morning after the first night, and all the notices were out, and they were dreadful, the notices, his notices were awful. And he, he, he had a clutch of them in his hand, and he said, grumble, 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 never a kind word, I don't know what to do for them. And it was sort of pathetic. I was, Jerry was pretty merciless about it. He, oh, man, he can't act at all. He used to say, oh, he's dreadful. But I, I had seen, I don't think Jerry had seen to the extent I had, Richardson at his peak, just after the war, when he was playing Falstaff, Cyrano de Bergerac, um, John of Gaunt, with Alec Guinness's Richard II. Um, I mean, he was, to me, he was, in many ways, the greatest actor. He had such warmth and, and a wonderful film actor, too. He did some wonderful screen performances, Richardson. Um, and I used to think, I mean, I never dared to talk to him unless he occasionally addressed a word in my direction because he was a sort of god to me at the time, as was Gielgud, I mean, who, who directed this unfortunate production of Macbeth. And um, uh, he, of course, I worshipped. I, I did... Um, <laughs> I don't think he noticed me. I, I, my great moment in Macbeth... Um, by that time, I'd gone into all the plays. And I, my great moment was... Um, I didn't even have any lines in my breath, but when, when Macbeth says, uh, give me, in the banqueting scene, give me some wine, fill full, and the, the ghost sidles on and sits down in the bank. And uh, my great moment was to, I, when he said, fill me, give me some wine, fill full, I, I used to step forward as the servant and fill his beaker with wine. <laughs> that was my great moment. Um, but, um, uh, oh, it was, it was awful, really. I mean, he he, he did... He used to dry all over the place, and, and one night, late in the season, it was November, I mean, because the notices was, were such that had it been in the West End, they would have taken the play off, they would have taken the production off within two weeks. But because it was at Stratford, and it opened the second play of the season, uh, he, was, he had to play it once or twice a week uh, for, until the end of November. I mean, it was, so it was with him, he, he couldn't forget it, he had to go on and do it. And I remember it was November the 5th, and he just started the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in this petty... And he came on and he said, um, he, or he got the message, the Queen, my Lord, is dead. Uh, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and a kid left, let off a banger in the, in the gallery at Stratford. Bang! And he was, poor chap, he was... Uh, and he, he couldn't remember. Uh, he couldn't remember that. And he, it was... He tried to, uh, and he, he made sort of awful noises. I don't know how he got through it. And he was also playing Prospero in The Tempest. And um, he, he, the lines were, um, uh, Ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, he embarked on this lengthy speech, and you, 
mushrooms he suddenly remembered. I mean, it was dreadful. And it was awful, because in the last scene of Macbeth, with the fight with Macduff, who was played by Jack Gwilym, um, the fight, he hated fighting, unlike Olivia, of course, who just adored stage fights. Richardson hated it, hated when he had to do a fight. And the fight in Macbeth was arranged by, I can't remember his name now, he was quite a famous Laertes in his time. His bread and butter was arranging rather elaborate fights, you know, and he loved to make them as elaborate as possible. So for Macbeth, he'd arranged this fight, which he, he, um, he taught Richardson with great difficulty, and it started with stock whips, and they threw down the stock whips, and they picked up sword and dagger, um, and it was an elaborate, uh, elaborate fight, and Richardson never learnt it. Kilgood said, oh, Ralph, when are we going to see the fight? And, and, and Ralph said, well, we're still working on it, Johnny, he used to say. And finally, he had to, they had to come on and do the fight for... And um, Richardson saw this lengthy fight, which Richardson had learnt with great difficulty, starting with whips for some reason, and then going on to sword and shield and sword and dagger. And it went on for about five minutes, and Gilgood said, Oh, no, 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 Ralph, no, it's far too long, I'm awfully sorry, no, lovely fight, um, sorry, we're going to cut it right down, we've got to cut it down. As indeed they had to. And so the fight was rearranged, and it was um, just sword and dagger. But Ralph never, he, he still carried memories of this lot of fight. In production, he never learned. He never did the fight without talking it through. And he used to say, Leon Macduff, and damn be him that first cries hold enough. And now I put put down my sword, I, I put down my sword and I pick up my dagger and I go, one, two, at the top of his voice. I mean, he did this every night. And I go, oh, ah, ah, ee, and I go, one, two, and I go, oh, like that, and I go like this, and I go, oh, ah. And the company, who anyway were assembling in the wings for the curtain call by that time, we used to stand there, and we were pissing ourselves, I mean, <laughs> But it was so sad. I mean, it was awful, really. And this poor guy used to have to do Macbeth right till the end of the season, once or twice a week sometimes. Awful. And again, with The Tempest, you see, he forgot, he used to forget the lines. And the only thing that he was really, he played, the other thing he played was uh, Volpone. Mm. Um, and he was he was pretty good in Volpone. Tony Quayle played Mosca. Um, but for me, as a young actor straight out of Rada, I mean, it was um, wonderful to, to do a season, just, just to be around him, you know, to watch him, because I was totally stage-struck. Cool. And um, it was, in, as I was saying, it was in the days when you wouldn't dream of saying to an older actor in the company, calling him by Christian name. I mean, no one ever calls anyone but Christian names now. But uh, in those days, it was, you know, it was a long time ago. And it was 60, 65 years ago or something, you know, 62 years ago. I don't um, mind that. I like a bit of difference. Um, uh, but funny, interestingly, because you, you early, you know, small part in The Tempest on stage, you, you then went the other end and played Gonzalo, the old man, on yeah, television. Well, I, I played it on telly, and then I also played it with with, uh, with, uh, with Jacobi. Yes, I had played it on television. Do, do you think Shakespeare works on the telly? Those BBC, that BBC Shakespeare well, was a massive project. It, it was it? Cedric Messina's folly, really. He decided as a BBC producer that he was going to be the man who was putting the whole canon of 37 plays on the box. And, of course, they varied enormously with success. I think... Um, they, they, were, they were pretty studio-bound. I, I did The Tempest, and then I also did Henry VIII um, with Tim West and, and uh, John Stride playing the, the, the two leads. And I think that sort of worked quite well. I mean, it's not a very good play, Henry VIII, but it, it sort of it, it, it worked quite well. Um, but I, I think the ones that were studio-bound I don't think worked all that well. I mean, some of them, I think, worked quite well. Uh, some of them were pretty disastrous, I think. Horden a more natural fit for Prospero than than Richardson? Oh, I think so. Yes, yes. I mean, Richardson at the time was going was going through a pretty bad time. I mean, uh, uh, I think he was in love with Margaret Leighton, who had been his leading lady at the Old Vic Company a few years before Stratford. I mean, she was then a young actress straight out of the Birmingham Rep, and she made a, a great hit in, in the in the Old Vic Company. Um, and she was playing Roxanne in Cyril de Bergerac with, with Richardson. And I think he'd fallen in love, love with her, really. Um, and he was pretty disturbed when at Stratford she went off with Lawrence Harvey, who was 
in the company playing fairly big parts. He was already beginning to be a successful film star then. Uh, and he was very much on the make. And I think someone, he was advised that to do a classical season at Stratford would be quite a good move career-wise. And so he did. And of course, then he, he uh, added Margaret Leighton to his trophies. Um, I thought he was a terrible oaf, quite honestly. Uh, he was very bad in, in everything he did. I mean, he played uh, Orphidius in Coriolanus. Uh, he played a small part in Volpone. And he played Orlando opposite uh, Margaret Leighton in As You Like It, which Ralph Richardson wasn't in that season. Um, so, I, I mean, I've been associated with As You Like It more than any other play. So I think I've given more performances of As You Like It than any other play. Well, and what, but what a great part to, uh, to, to Yes, to I enjoyed play, doing so. that, uh, I must say. I did enjoy doing that. When you were Polonius to Derek Jacobi's Hamlet as well. That, I played Polonius. Uh, yes, I don't think I was very good as Polonius. I, 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 played, I doubled it with the Gravedigger, the first Gravedigger, which made for a busy evening. But I, yeah. um, I, I, I did enjoy the dub, doing the double. Um, I... I think I'd seen too many Hamlets, I'd seen too many Poloniuses, and I, I didn't feel that I really made it, made it my own, um, because I never knew what it meant to say, to thine own self, it must follow as the night, the, to, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night, the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. And I've always wondered what the hell that meant. I mean, what, what does it mean to be true to yourself? I mean, I, it, I, and I thought, if you're true to yourself, you can't be false to anyone. And I thought... I don't actually understand what that means, literally. I couldn't, I couldn't give you a, a decent paraphrase of that. And it worried me that I... Um, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I think I did manage with Jacobis to make it my own, but I never, I, I never really thought I was much good as Polonius. Um, well, and what about... Because you'd done the Coriolanus with Anthony Quell, but you also did it with Nicol Williamson. Uh, I played it with Nicol, yes. Well, that was... Um, um, Again, I wasn't very happy with the production, actually. I mean, Nickel, I played with Nickel in, uh, some years before at the Arts Theatre in the, in the Lower Depths, the Gorky. And Nickel at that time was a very brash young actor. He was just beginning to feel his feet. Um, in that production of, of, of the Lower Depths, we had an old actor, a famous old actor, um, a famous drunk actor, Called Wilfred Lawson. Oh yes. Who was famous? Uh, he was he was adored by the profession because he was a wonderful actor. But unfortunately, he drank himself off the stage, and he was blacklisted by tenants who wouldn't allow him to appear in any of their theatres uh, because of his drunkenness. Um, I had worked with him uh, on television uh, a, a couple of times. And I, I adored him. I thought he was a marvellous a marvelous actor. And I'd seen him give some marvellous performances. But in the lower depths, he was drinking very heavily. As I think Nicol Williamson was. Uh, Nicol Williamson uh, didn't really know to, what to do with the part he played in it. Um, and he behaved extremely badly to, to Wilfred Lawson. He was very rude to him. Uh, called him a drunken old to his face and that sort of thing. And Wilfred was deeply hurt by this. I mean, uh, I got on well with Wilfred partly because I respected him for, for what he'd done in his career. I mean, he'd had an amazing, amazing career. I mean, he was a film star in the 1930s. Um, he did a wonderful Doolittle in the film of Pygmalion with Leslie Howard and Wendy Hiller. Um, and I respected him for that. Nicol didn't respect anyone, really. I mean, he was a sort of drunken Glaswegian Scot um, and I actually it's at that time I was in the lower depth with him um, I took a strong dislike to him and I swore I would never worked with Nicol Williamson again because he behaved so badly both on stage and off stage um, I have to be frank about it some years go by and suddenly um, in 19... 73, um, having worked with him in the Lower Depths in 1961, 1962 at the Arts Theatre, in 1973, uh, Trevor Nunn, who by that time had taken over the RSC, uh, I, I'd known him in, in, when he was assist, an assistant director uh, under Peter Hall, 
but suddenly he was boss man and he rang me and said, would I play one of the tribunes in Coriolanus um, with Nicol Williamson? And I thought, oh, Jesus. <laughs> but um, I agreed to do it. And uh, actually, Nicol was a change man. He'd become much more the leading man. Uh, he was um, very polite uh, to everyone. Um, he behaved very well. And I was, in, in, in that case, I was... Uh, very pleased to be with him again, and, and uh, I, I thought, yes, you, you have changed completely. I shouldn't have judged you so harshly when you were young. Um, it was interesting, you know, to be in two different productions of Coronavirus over the years. I mean, Glenn Byam's Shaw's production with Tony Quayle, which was very traditional, and, and uh, Trevor Nunn's production, um, which was uh, anything but traditional, really. But, but uh, I think um, I, I, I did a play with... Uh, Laurence Olivier's wife, uh, Joan uh, Plowright, just after that um, at Greenwich, I was in Rosma, Ibsen's Rosmer's home, and um, because I was in Rosmer's home, um, I got to know Olivier, who used to come pick up his wife quite often from the theatre in, in their taxi, um, and I got to know Olivier quite well, and um, I said to him uh, one night, I said, did you last year, I said, did you go and see, because Olivier was the greatest uh, Coriolanus, you know, from before the war and since the war, he did it twice. And I said, did you happen to see Nicole Williamson? And Olivier said, he said, it is a play I'm very fond of. He said, um, no, I didn't think that I could bear to watch Nicole Williamson play it. <laughs> he was quite <laughs> frank about it. And he didn't go and see it. Well, I mean, you know, um, I could understand him not wanting to go and see it, really. Um, because Nickel was pretty good, but he wasn't that good in it. I mean, he wasn't. It wasn't a great performance. Um, he was very spoiled by his success, I think. And uh, you know, um, bad behaviour on stage is. is um, I suppose I'm an old fuddy-duddy, really, but I, um, I surely am. But um, uh, I, I can't be doing with that. You know, I really can't. Um, he did behave so badly in the lower depths. Um, I, I could never forgive him for that. Who would you say then, with a, with a, with a, of all of the actors that you worked with, with a, just in terms of pure ability and class, were the, the finest actors that you well, worked with? Well, um, I never actually worked with Alec Guinness. I, I'm sorry I did, did never worked with him because I did see him at his peak. I mean, uh, when he was. He was dazzling as as an as a youngish actor. I mean, I, I didn't see him before the war when he played the modern dress Hamlet in 1938. I didn't see that. I was too young to see that. But I saw him doing some wonderful work at the Old Vic um, when he was unrecognisable from one part to another. I mean, he, that was his great skill. And latterly, I, I mean, when he was playing Lawrence of Arabia and things like that, he 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 and he, of course, he he took religion up in a big way. And I. I always felt he was playing our dear Lord a lot of the time. He had a sort of sort of saintly thing about him, um, and uh, I didn't go for him so much in the, the later. But in, in, at his peak, I thought he was wonderful. Uh, I never worked with Michael Redgrave, and he, his Hamlet remains with me as the greatest Hamlet I've ever ever seen. I think. Um, I think he was a wonderful actor, Redgrave, and he was undervalued by the profession. I mean, he was always accused of being terribly intellectual, which I don't think was true, but I think he was a marvellous actor. Um, Olivier, whom I, I can't really claim to... I mean, we were both in, in Brideshead Revisited, but we, yeah, that was the only time I ever, um, uh, that I was in the same thing as he was in, or not that I ever met him. Um, but um, I, I deplore the fact that Olivier is... These days, he's he's poked fun of almost, I think, for, for, for as an actor because they say, oh, he, he can't act on on the screen. In fact, I think he gave some very good screen performances indeed. But you have to judge Olivier by his stage work, and on stage he was incomparable. I mean, his uh, Oedipus Rex, the famous scene where he can't, he blinds himself and comes on blind and does these huge noises, these huge screams which live with me still. Um, his Hotspur, um, I mean, I suppose now his Lear, I, I think he did a very good uh, television Lear in his old age, mm. but, but he played it as a young man and it was the first Lear I'd seen and, and I was then 17 or something. And I bought it. I mean, I don't think I would now, but I bought it and it was... 
I'm sure it was Trixie and Alec Guinness who played the fool with him. I mean, he always used to say, oh, he was asked, you know, how marvellous. People used to say to Alec Guinness, isn't it marvellous how you, you, you know, you, you, you sort of crouch by uh, Lear all the time and uh, look at him adoringly and all this. And Guinness used to say, well, the only reason I did that was the only way to get in the light. Because <laughs> unless you got close to him, he was in, always in the light. And it was quite true. I mean, he was up to all the tricks. I mean, he... And I think he did used to ask for the lighting to, to go up one or two points when he entered. And, and I think he did use these tricks, you know, that, that um, he was up to all the tricks. But he was incomparable on stage. I mean, thrilling beyond words. His hotspur was wonderful. Now, if you borrow, which I hope you may do if you're interested, Long Day's Journey and Tonight, the Eugene O'Neill play with Ronnie Pickup, mm-hmm. I think on stage, it was one of his greatest performances. One of the last things he did in the theatre. Um, it wasn't the very last thing, but he, it was one of his last performances. Playing the lead in Long Day's Journey, which is a huge part, um, a fast part. I, Deirdre and I went, I got tickets for it, when it moved in from the old Vic, it went into the West End, to the, what is now the um, Noel Card Theatre. And I, ra- I got tickets, and I arranged to meet Deirdre at the theatre. She was doing something else, and I, I, I arranged to meet her there. So I was hanging about the front of the theatre about an hour before the show went up, waiting for Deirdre, because we were going to have a drink together before we went in. And a taxi drew up at the curb, just an ordinary London cab. And I did a double take, because Olivier got out of the cab with in an old Mac. No one recognised him. He was wearing an old raincoat, and round his neck he had one of those big plastic neck things that people wear when they've got something wrong with their spine or, you know, you know, you know what they're like. Yeah, yeah, neck brace. And he was, he was wearing this. And he walked very slowly round the side of the theatre to the stage door and I was standing there watching him. I thought, how the f*** is he going to play this part tonight? Because James Tyrone, the, the leading part, in, as you may know, in, in, in Long Day's Journey, is a huge part. And I knew that he was going to leap on the table and change the light bulb at one point, which is, he does. And I thought, what are we in for tonight? Because he was he literally walking as an old man, very slowly, with his neck brace on. And he gave the performance of his life in this. I mean, it was wonderful. Of course he wasn't wearing a neck brace on stage. And he was leaping about and... And what he, it wasn't just his energy, the fact that he had this enormous energy on the stage it wasn't that really in that part what he what Olivier had was the ability to show the pain behind the eyes he was wonderful at doing pathos but so you know when people go on about Olivier um, you know being a bit of an old ham and you know how dreadful it was when he played Othello and how bold of him to even try the part um, it's it's said by people who didn't see Olivier at his peak, and I'm lucky enough to have done it. And I, and also, I would have to, although there were total chalk and cheese, I would have to bracket him with Gilgood. And I mean, Gilgood, again, in his prime, uh, I mean, he ended up doing bits in films, and it was great fun and all that, but um, he was a great actor. I mean, uh, wonderful, wonderful Leontes in Winter's Tale, wonderful performance incredibly moving um, and I did I, I did actually work with him because um, uh, um, he again was also in in, 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 in Brideshead but um, uh, we, I, the last time I actually met him was uh, we went to a preview of one or two episodes of, of, of Brideshead in which uh, you've seen Brideshead yes well yes. I mean Olivia, um, Gilbert's performance as the father of, of, of Ryder's father in that I thought was a marvellous bit of comic acting were wonderful um, wonderful scenes um, and 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 he, uh, he, uh, he came up and spoke to me uh, we, we had a little there was a sort of party before the preview at some cinema you know projection place um, so I, I, I thought we were very good very good playing playing that very unpleasant army officer very good uh, and I was very bucked, because the last time I'd worked with Olivier, he, he didn't know who I was, because I was walking on in Macbeth at Stratford with Ralph Richardson, and uh, there was a scene when I had, just before I had to pour the wine, I had to sh- shield Banquo's ghost coming on, and I was thin as a rake in those days, and I was wearing, uh, sort of bare to the waist, I think we had to cover ourselves in, in 
sort of dark makeup. And I, I remember Olivier uh, Gilgood calling out from the stalls as director, Oh dear, who's that bloody laddie not shielding the ghost properly? And it was me, and I knew it was me, and I felt dreadful. And there's also the dress rehearsal of Macbeth at Stratford. Oh God, am I going on for? No, no. I'm sure your tape's run out. But <laughs> Gilgood never saw his production of Macbeth in performance because after the dress rehearsal on a Sunday night, he had to fly out to Hollywood to make the film of Julius Caesar, in which he played Cassius with Bart Marlon Brand as yep. Antony. And that was, and, he, uh, and by the time he got back, uh, for some reason, he, maybe because it had been slammed, but he never came back and saw the production when he'd finished filming Julius Caesar. But at the dress rehearsal, there was this typical, typical Gilgood. Um, there, there were no very strong equity rules in those days, and we started rehearsal, the dress rehearsal, uh, I think, in the afternoon of, on the Sunday. And by the time we got to about eight o'clock at night, um, we'd, we'd, only, we'd only got halfway through the dress run, I think. And so Gilford suddenly said from the stalls, he said, oh, now, we must, we're going to stop for dinner uh, now. It's going to be an hour's break, and I want you all to go away and enjoy your lovely dinners. I mean, I was then getting, I'd be, I was getting seven quid a week, and um, I came out of the stage door, I changed quickly, and, I mean, I, by the Sunday night, when, on seven pound a week, I paid my digs, I had a few coins, silver coins in my pocket, and mostly copper, and I was going to go to the milk bar and get a, get a cheese roll for my supper, because that's all I could afford. Um, I got changed. It was dark when we came out of the theatre, and you know the, the, everyone broke up. And, and Gilgood went off with with, with Richardson. They went into the theatre restaurant. I think and it was they had their proper dinner. I came out of the stage door in the dark, and I saw John Turner, who was also on the lowest rung of the ladder. Uh, although I was actually dressing with Jerry Willis, but uh, and John Turner, and I saw John Turner walking down the side of the theatre. I came out of the stage and I said, "Oh, I said, come on, John, doing my best Gilbert imitation. Let's go to the milk bar and have a lovely cheese roll." As I said it, I felt this presence behind me, and I turned, and Gilbert was coming out two paces behind me. He must have heard me, and I remember I fled into the night. I I just ran. <laughs> into the dark. And that was the last time I had any meeting with Gilgood at all. Um, until that showing of Brideshead, when he actually came up and spoke to me. And I thought, I can't, I don't dare tell him that the last time we met, I was the bloody laddie who wasn't shielding the ghost properly. And so, I, you know, I... Uh, I, I worship Gilgood, and it was a dreadful production of Macbeth, really, I think. Um, but I still, you know, to be in the same rehearsal room with Gilgood was a great treat. So, you know, Olivier Gilgood, Redgrave, Ralph Richardson, particularly Ralph Richardson, I think, and Alec Guinness. And I did get to work in a way with Richardson and with Gilgood, and I did meet Olivier and, and uh, did meet him quite often. Um, so I was lucky, I was lucky. Well, I consider myself very lucky that I've, I've uh, been the recipient of so much of My your God, time. Quarter past Bless you, yes. Come and have lunch. So, is, well, is, is, uh, well I'll just finish off by yes. um, well, asking you to nominate your charity. Well, I, I would like, uh, I think one of the most worthwhile charities that I occasionally or try and subscribe to when I can is Médecins Sans Frontières. Uh, and uh, so I'm, if you're going to give them a few bob, I'd be grateful. I will do a link in my outro. Uh, and, uh, this was convened nominally to talk about Doctor Who, which was 50 years old a couple of years ago. Do you have a message for the Doctor Who fans, John? Well, good luck to you all, and I'm delighted and I'm honoured to, to give give you my autograph when, whenever you ask for it. <laughs> uh, and I'm delighted that you enjoyed Ghost Light, if you watched it. Well, I'm delighted you've given me so much of your time. John Nettleton, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Bless well, you. I hope you've no. got something there. I'm oh, sure absolutely terrific. No, it's all digital, it's great. It's all digital. It's 
Well, I couldn't cut that down anymore, so I'll be quick. Medicine Sans Frontier is uh, John's charity, which is msf.org.uk. msf.org.uk. My thanks to John for his hospitality and his kindness. What a wonderful fellow. I'm sure you'll agree after listening to that. There'll be another one next week. Till then, ta-ta. soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, novel adaptations, original sin. Ross Forrester, Chris Quench, I guessed. Nice fur. I think the trade name is Body Beppling. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to wear high heels? I thought you were on my side. I am. Her SIM cord was on. She turned the picture off to make it look inactive, but the comm light was green. Everything was being heard by someone else. Earth's in an expanding empire phase at the moment. They aren't especially keen on aliens. You'd better keep to yourself, then. Don't I always? If the mind probe record was faked, somebody wants us to believe Annie was guilty. So she can't be. She's innocent. So you're saying all these spur-of-the-moment murders are assassinations in disguise, with adjudicators covering them up? You don't understand how time works. I can't change what's happened or influence what will be. There's been too much killing, too much pain. If the Hith are to get anywhere, diplomacy is the only solution. I promise, by the time you have screened out your knowledge, one agonized fact at a time, you would rather have died. I'm playing with a fire so dangerous it could scorch eternity. Big finish. We love stories.